Hey, what's up, y'all? I'm Adiba Nelson, and I'm on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, wait, wait. I'm nervous. Yeah. It's your easy listening station. I'm there right now. <laughs> Why? You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. One them on the Visceral Change Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to this episode of the chopping block. Here <laughs> with a wonderful guest today. Adiba Nelson. Adiba, how are you today? I am so good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Uh, Adiba, for those who don't know, is an author, a freelance journalist, a speaker, and of course, a wonderful mom, which we'll talk a little bit about as we dig in today. Um, And so as we continue on with season four, we want to remind people that discussions around diversity, equity, and inclusion are always important. And if nothing else, they intersect with all that we do. At least that's the visceral change mantra. So whether you are working in the professional field, whether you are a student, whether you are someone who is just a lifelong learner, we hope that the information we bring to you is going to be really beneficial and something that you can uh, take home with you in all these fields as we move forward. And in that, we want to talk to Adiba today. We don't want to waste any time. We want to chop it up. We want to engage. We want to, we want to talk through some of the content and concepts. Uh, first and foremost, I should also disclaim that uh, Adiba is a good friend with my wife. Um, and so I was lucky enough to, I'm, I am lucky enough to know Adiba by, through adjacency. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, a lot of this information that we learned today will be new for me as well. Um, but okay. Adiba has been kind enough to, to engage us. So thank you again, cool. Adiba, for kicking it. Thank you for having me. Of course. So uh, Adiba, you are uh, from Bayside, Bayside, Queens, New York, right? I am. I'm a city girl. Yep. Yeah, I listen. I'm, Not I'm from like Boston. The city girls. I'm I'm a city girl. <laughs> I got you. I'm from Boston originally, and we'll, we'll we'll chat about that transition in a second. Um, but uh, talk to me about coming up in Bayside, Queens. Uh, what was the demographic like, and and what was it like growing up when you grew up where you grew up? I feel like in my neighborhood, it was pretty diverse. There were a lot of black families. Um, I originally. So I did Manhattan, the Bronx, Queens, the Bronx, Queens, the Bronx. Oh, okay. That's how it went. Um, but uh-huh. in Bayside specifically, it was pretty diverse. Um, I went to elementary school there. And in my class, I mean, I had second generation Italian kids, first generation mm. Italian kids, Greek kids, Taiwanese kids, Black kids, Puerto Rican, Jewish, East Indian. I mean, literally, I think we had united nations in our classroom and um i loved it i really did love it even though you know we were really poor didn't know we were poor at the time but in hindsight i'm like oh dang yeah yeah we were struggling (laughs) i mean when you eat cereal and you don't have milk so you take your swiss miss chocolate milk packet and mix it with some water because you also don't have sugar (laughs) but you got some cornflakes like you might be a little bit poor um and did, did that did that did that impact how you perceived your possibilities to be or, or was there always a sense of hope that was sort of centered in there I don't I don't know if I would call it hope I think I'd call it audacity okay like I didn't know that we were poor but I knew that we weren't rich but I kind of always thought that I would be like a Janet Jackson backup dancer. Nice. <laughs> like I always <laughs> saw like this fantastical life for myself. 
Okay. Even at age eight, I was going through, and I don't know any kid that didn't do this, but like, remember they had the JCPenney catalogs? Of course. And I would pick out my entire life and um, always the most expensive in any category. And that was like when you could order like the ride on lawnmower. I lived in the city. Oh. I didn't have a lawn, but in my future, <laughs> I was going to have ah. a lawn big enough to yeah. have the most expensive ride on lawnmower. Got so it. I don't think my poverty really affected who I thought I could be. Yeah. In my mind is, well, of course I'm going to have that. I don't know how, but I'm going to have that, of course. Yeah. And sort of planning for the, the long run. And yeah. and did, did you have, in terms of your support systems through family and friends, yeah. um, was there a sense of, of, of collectiveness that said, or at least that suggested, you know, Adiba, yes, this is our situation. And I see you dreaming big. And you can be whatever you want to be down the road. I don't. There was never explicit conversation about our situation, mm. per se, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was kind of like those sidelines of like, oh, we can't afford this. Oh, I have to get a second or third job. Oh, we're have to move and we're going to move in with Titi Mimi and Uncle Louie and the kids. Mm. Um, and there wasn't necessarily a, we see you dreaming big because I don't know that I really shared these grandiose dreams with anyone. Sure. It was just in my head, but I was always that kid who was always like, oh, we're going to do a family talent show and I'm the lead singer and blah, blah, like, so I think everyone <laughs> yeah, yeah. knew that like, I wanted to be like, la da 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 da. Um, <laughs> but it was never something I verbalized per yeah. se. And we didn't have money for me to take acting classes or dance classes or anything like that. So it was me and my cousin fighting for who's going to sing the lead in the car on the new Madonna song. <laughs> right. Was, yes. You know, the. Um, family Christmas dinner and oh I'm gonna plan a, a talent show and I'm gonna be Michael Jackson and you guys are the backup dancers um but my mom always said you know life is what you make it yeah, yeah. and she yeah. always and I don't know if I agree with this or don't agree with this but she always forced college like Mm. you will mm. go to college school's not over until you graduate from college mm. mom what do you want for christmas i want you to get your college degree like mm. to a five-year-old who's like what? yeah i can't uh, go buy that uh, <laughs> i can't even right, right. That money. what are you talking about right um so it wasn't like a, i see that you want to be a star let's support this it's you always want to sing up front i want you to get your education do with that what you will, but this is this is where it's at. That's right. Well, and you know, it's funny you mentioned the college component, and a lot of parents sort of stress that. Uh, I'm I myself am am a a, a a proponent of that, you know. And I had to check myself at times because college isn't for everybody. Just because right. it was something that worked out for me doesn't mean it would work out for the next person. Um, and I, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I was also going to say, I think, I think we're kind of close in age. I'm 45, mm. I think. Um, <laughs> and I think our parents' generation was very much that generation of, 
you go to school, you graduate, you get a good job. Yeah. And that I think that's why that was always pushed. And I think especially in black households yeah. because of or households of color, not necessarily just black households, because my mom's Puerto Rican, right? Mm -hmm. Um but in households of color, like the quote unquote American dream that was fed, mm -hmm. the road to that is education. That's right. That's right. And so they may not have had access to that American dream, but like any parent, you want better for your own kid. And so what do you how what have you been told is going to get them better? It's education. So you push education. Well, and it's funny because uh I think that is what a lot of folks mean, including myself, um, when we say, you know, think about college or get the college degree. It's actually a lot less about the university and the schooling and more about engaging in education, whatever right. that is, whatever that is. Right. And, you know, when we think about the United States, it's funny, you, you, as you're talking about the American dream, some of the wealthiest people are without a degree, especially early on. I mean, those who laid that the foundation part. for this wealth disparity. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Yes, exactly. I'm like, wait a minute. All you have is a high school diploma and you're a billionaire? Yeah. And Where did I access go wrong? To opportunities. Like $60,000 in student loan debt. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. And that's something we, we need to be a lot more real about. I'm better about it than I ever was. Uh, make make no mistake about it. But I'm also not going to pretend like I I wasn't someone who was like, there are a lot of benefits in the college degree. I don't, I don't share. I, I do believe that to be true still, just because of the access mm -hmm. to opportunities and the doors it opens. Um, especially perceptively, but I also know that it's not required to live a a sustainable life in, in the ways that you want. You know, especially with so many different avenues open today through you know social media and such. Right. I mean, let me tell you, the only thing I regret about getting my college degree is the debt. That's it. Sure. Yeah. I'm right, right. grateful for all the experiences that it gave me, um, and how it prepared me professionally. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't regret my college. I don't even regret partying myself out the first two years and partying for another five years and then going back for four years. Uh, I don't regret it. Where did you I go? Huh? Where did you attend college? So the first time was 1995 through 97. Mm -hmm. And it was my first time being out of my mother's house. Okay. And out from under her thumb. And you can just imagine what that looks like when you're raised with a very religious, strict parent. Mm. <laughs> and then you're unleashed onto a college campus. Yes, indeed. And you're in your dorm and nobody can tell you what you can and cannot do. Yeah, it was a time. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> so I partied myself out. And then in 2002, I went back to school, but in Phoenix. Um, went to Mesa Community College because I literally had to start over, did that for two years and then transferred to ASU. Boo. Um, <laughs> uh, U of A did not have my major. And so by circumstance, I had to become a Sun Devil. Mm. And <laughs> what was the major? Social work. Okay. Yes, indeed. Uh, I I saw you, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. Um, I saw you label yourself at one point as a recovering social worker, and I'm uh -huh. interested in, in why you chose that language. But we'll come to that in a second. Okay. Um, all right. So you 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 talked about your mother being Puerto Rican, 
and you, you, you also engage the discussion around coming up in black families and you identify as Afro-Latina. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of folks off look may not see you that way or, or may not have known that out the door. Yeah. Uh, and this is a mix of identities, Afro-Latina, uh, that has really come into the lexicon strongly over the past five to seven years. I mean, in like a, uh, in a way where when you hear it, you're like, oh, I know what you're talking about without looking for a little bit more information. Right. Um, tell us, what does that mean to you, though, to be Afro-Latina? And, and maybe talk about that experience coming up in, in these two worlds. So I remember being a kid and when we'd have to fill out the Scantron sheets for tests. Mm-hmm. And it always asks you to choose your race or ethnicity, check one. That's right. And as a very young kid, I remember being very stuck because I knew that I was Black and I knew that I was Puerto Rican and I loved both equally. And I didn't understand why I had to choose one or the other to identify as. And I remember thinking that as early as like third grade, like, why do I have to choose between the two? I'm both. Yeah. And so I would just leave it blank. Yeah, yeah. Um, hear about that. In my family dynamic, so on my father's side of the family, they are Black. My grandmother, from what I understand, her parents' family hailed from Benin and Ghana, that area. Not entirely, entirely sure, but that's what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and my grandfather, my father's father's family is from Barbados. Oh, hey, um, same. That's where my lineage goes. Oh, okay. You, had, <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Um, and then my mother's side of the family is Puerto Rican. Um, Puerto Rican and Taino Indian, mm-hmm. which is the indigenous tribe to the Caribbean. Yes. And on my mother's side of the family, amongst my cousins, give or take one or two of like my first generation cousins, I was kind of the darkest. And um, it wasn't a thing, but I do remember that sometimes that'd be like a joke. Like, oh, you look like a crayon, a black crayon in uh, your clothes on a white wall. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, uh-huh, you guys are so funny, whatever. Right. Um, on my father's side of the family, I don't think they really like, they didn't think about me being Puerto Rican. I was a black girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up on the East Coast, it is not, and you would know this. You're also from the East Coast. That's right. It is nothing new to see someone that looks like me speaking Spanish. Yeah, no. Every day, no. all day occurrence. Mm-hmm. Nobody questions it, especially in New York. Especially in New York, you have Dominican, you have Puerto Rican, you have Cuban, you have Pan- like every range of Caribbean uh, Spanish. That's right. Is in New York City. Um, and every shade of the rainbow from like Blanquito with a like blonde hair, blue eyes speaking Spanish to like black as night. Beautiful. <laughs> Low in the dark. Black. Gorgeousness speaking uh-huh. Spanish. Uh-huh. In my own family, on my mother's side of the family, um, from what I understand, I never met them, but I've seen pictures of my Tio Urbano and my Tio Lima. Very, 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 very very dark like that Mm. like senegalese glow just beautiful they did not speak a lick of english wow then i come to arizona Mm -hmm. and i still get it we moved here in 1988 and it's 2023 and i'm still questioned as to how do i know how to speak spanish 
Who taught me? Where did I learn this? Mm. Oh, you speak it so cute. That one makes me want to flip people off so fast. Yeah, I could imagine. Like, how do you tell, that's like telling a Black person, oh, you speak so eloquently. Man, yes, exactly like that. Yeah. With that. Yeah, if you so articulate. Move, 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 because <laughs> I'm about to lose it on you. Yes. I don't speak it so cute. I speak it the way I learned it. I speak it from my family that it's in Puerto Rico and, and it, it's indigenous and it's mixed with Taino language. That is my Spanish. Yeah. Yes. That's it. But I get questions on it all the time. And part of me understands it because I do not present as what is stereotypically considered Latina, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. And I blame the media because the media will feed you pictures of JLo all day and tell you that's what Puerto Rican looks like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, yeah. But that's not true. People forget yeah. there was a whole slave trade that happened and that Christopher Columbus had no idea where the hell he was going. Mm -hmm. um, I have had people, when I tell them that my, my family is um, also Puerto Rican, say, oh, Puerto Rico, that's by Cuba, right? Not homie. Not really. Um, I've told them I'm Puerto Rican, but my family, you know, came to New York. Oh, you're like an East Coast Mexican. Oh, wow. Hey, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Like Jeez. I've heard some of the most egregious things because people don't know how to hold a dark skinned Latin person on the same plane as a light skinned Latin person. Yes. And I, I am okay with making people uncomfortable. I don't mm -hmm. mind it. Sure, um, sure, sure. So I just, just recently I was at an event and I was um, doing a storytelling event and I was mixing my Spanish in with my storytelling because it was appropriate for the story. Mm -hmm. And as I was leaving, I was in the lobby and this woman comes up to me, she goes, oh, you're Puerto Rican? Like literally said it just like that. Like you're Puerto Rican? Mm -hmm. I was like, I am. Huh. You don't look it. I was wow. like, uh, there was a whole slave trade that happened. I sure do look it. Sure, yeah. Yes, that's and that's the response. You know what I mean? Like that, that's that's the response. People forget yeah. that you know that that transatlantic slave trade only what well, people don't know is that only five percent of those enslaved Africans came to the United States. Only five percent. Right. Brazil got the vast majority. And then it, it, sort of the rest went everywhere else. And so this, this notion that someone who looks like you can't possibly be Puerto Rican or any other Spanish-speaking identity is, is speaks more to the, their ignorance than it does your actual livelihood or experience. Exactly. And I was just like, but then she went on to say, but like you were speaking Puerto Rican. And I was like, I'm speaking Spanish, like there's no <laughs> right. language. Just put it, like, what are you saying? And it's just people don't know. They just don't know. Then they don't, and they don't know that they don't know. That's right? right. That's right. Yeah. And so maybe me making people uncomfortable is not the best way to go about things. But also, like, I'm from New York, so. And, and look, I'm I am a major proponent of of making people uncomfortable or letting them sit in the discomfort, at least in some of the research I've done is, I would say about 87% of the time people perpetuate isms like microaggressions and stuff mm -hmm. is because they haven't been called out on it. So mm -hmm. if, if, if I say that to you and you don't check me and 
and internal message is like, oh, well, I guess it's okay to say this. And so right. sometimes, sometimes that check is, is, is required. Now there's, there's different ways to do it. Of course. I mean, we're all not cut from the same cloth necessarily, but I, I, I'm here to support the, <laughs> the, the calling in or calling out. Well, I will <laughs> tell you, I've gotten better about calling in as opposed to calling out. Um, okay. I am a Scorpio. So that call out oh. was good. That call out's real. <laughs> <laughs> For sure it is. But I always say I'm a Scorpio that's had therapy. So I've learned how to call in. Learned how to call in, you know, and, and I've always believed it has a little something to do with relationships as well. You know, I, if I'm invested in you, I might take one approach. Yeah. If I'm not invested yes. in you, I might take another approach. If it's after five o'clock, I'm not entitled to take a certain approach either. You know, if I've had a martini. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you're going to get what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Wonderful. Uh, and so you went on throughout your journey in life. Um, what made you decide to go back to school to to pursue this degree and then ultimately finish with your, your master in social work? So correction, I have a bachelor's. I didn't get my master's. I started bachelor's. my master's. Um, okay, okay. My daughter was born and yeah, that's that just doesn't happen. <laughs> Not okay, for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what made me go back to school? Um, I think I just, I didn't want to just make $10 and 83 cents for the rest of my life. Honestly, mm -hmm. I was working a lot and I was working hard, but I wasn't getting anywhere. Um, and my friends all had graduated on time. Um, and I was still just kind of hanging out. And like they could go places and do things, but I couldn't necessarily do that. Or I could go and then like be like, oh, but I guess I got to get a payday loan to make rent because I just spent rent in Vegas. Right. Um, and I didn't want to do that anymore. And I kind of also knew that there was just more for me. I didn't know what exactly that more was. Yeah. But I knew that it wasn't answering phones in a call center for the rest of my life. I knew that right. wasn't it. And so I decided to go back to school and I didn't know initially what I wanted to go to school for. I knew that I wanted to help people, but I didn't know what major that fell under. Mm -hmm. So to backtrack a little bit, I was working a corporate job. I was working for a bank of America and I was making really good money and I was feeling very unfulfilled because mm -hmm. it was just you know, taking people's money and taking people's payments. And I was working on the government side of Bank of America. Yeah. And it was difficult. You know, you'd hear families who, you know, their partner is off in Afghanistan and they're just trying to cover their credit card bills and, or people who are in Afghanistan and their card has been turned off. And they're like, I can't order diapers for my kid back home. Mm. And those stories really got to me. And that's what's like, I don't want to be the person taking their money. I want to be the person helping them through these situations. Mm -hmm. um, and so I left my corporate job and went into social work. Um, but a, a social work light, I will call it. I didn't need a degree to do what I was doing. I was working with families, helping them find quality early childhood education Good. for their kiddos, helping providers get certified to be quality early ch childhood providers. Um, and working with families on that end, but also providing resources for families who called in and just needed a little help, needed to know how do I get from point A to point B? I'm, yeah. How do I pay this bill? 
And so in doing that job, I was like, okay, I want to go back to school to figure out how to do this for real. And my counselor was like, oh, you want to be a social worker? And I was like, okay. I don't know what that is, but okay. Right. I'd never really heard the term. Like I knew, let me take that back. I'd heard the term social worker, but I didn't know logistically what that meant. What it was. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I went to school and I got my degree in social work, my bachelor's of social work, and I graduated, uh, cum laude. I nice. actually like got my stuff together after partying hey. for a long time. Right. And, um, I did that for about 11 years, which you count the pre-degree social work work. Sure. It was all together about 11 years. Wow. And the running joke in social work is that there's a two-year burnout rate. Oh, wow. Really? Which, yeah. Especially oh. if you're working with children and families. Yeah. Um, so it's intense. That. It's yep. intense. And I definitely had some very intense situations. Um, but I did love it. I really did yeah, love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. for sure. My, uh, I have a pretty big social work oriented family my dad has uh i'd like to say he runs the place but he because he's been there for over 40 years but uh the largest homeless shelter in new england called uh pine street Inn. he's worked there since you know early 80s mid 80s and uh he um you know that's kind of been his calling and my sister is very much social work oriented uh, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of been her calling and such and although um, education. I mean, there's a, a relationship between education, social work, counseling. And really don't fall, don't fall terribly far. Yeah, uh, for sure. So I, I, I love that you were able to persist and stick through uh, because uh, a lot of times we lose sight of the bigger picture. I know some advice I used to give students that I worked with when they were frustrated about what was going on in front of them was, you know, sometimes you got to step outside yourself and. Mm-hmm. Think about who who's going to reap the benefits of you making this particular decision, right? Uh, and, and who's not, you know. So I, I love that. Uh, let's 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 jump forward now, uh, Diva, and uh, ain't that a mother? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. I had the I had the pleasure of uh of going to your what was it uh, release party? Tucson book launch. Yep. A book launch. Yeah, yeah. The Tucson book launch. Yes, yes, yes. Um. Really wonderful. My wife that was sort of the moderator, and it was it was really cool to to see you up there in your element, talking through the book. Um, I heard, of course, I heard what you had to say, but I I want you to to share some with the listeners. And so, I guess my question will be two part, and then you can take it where you want. Okay. Uh, talk to us about. Let me let me back up and set the stage. One thing about this book in particular is that you were extremely vulnerable in it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So in that. Two questions, and well, two part question. In that, talk to us about the book, Ain't That a Mother, uh-huh. your decision to write it, so on and so forth, and then emphasize, if you would, your decision to be so vulnerable and transparent in this particular uh, book or memoir of sorts. Okay, so so your first question, my decision to write the book, yeah. um, I hadn't initially planned to write the book. I had tinkered with the idea of a memoir for years, and I was like, nah, I don't think I'm ready. I don't yeah. think I'm. Ready. Um, but you know, when you put stuff out in the universe, it's kind of giving it permission to get the wheels going, right? That's right. Um, so like back in 2011, 12, I started playing with the idea. I was like, nah, not ready. 
And then um, in 2018, I was shopping my children's book to a major publisher. I had an agent that I was working with and we were trying to shop my children's book because though I self-published it, I didn't want to self-publish anymore. I really wanted the children's book to be taken over by a publishing house and do all of the work because it's a lot. Um, and I just didn't want to do it. And so when they sent out the children's book package, the proposal, they also sent the um, documentary, the full Nelson that was done on my daughter and I. And once again, every publisher said, we don't want the book. We're not interested. No, it's self-published. We're not going to do it. However, we watched the documentary and we really think this woman should write a memoir. And so the agent came back to me. She's like, look, I can't sell your book. I'm sorry. However, would you consider writing a memoir? And I was like, oh, damn it. Here we are. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Full circle. Right. And I was like, well, I mean, I've been playing with it. So I guess, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, sure, I'll do it. And so she passed me to her colleague, who is now my my agent, um, because she handles YA and memoir and nonfiction literature or nonfiction historical literature and whatnot. And um we figured out kind of what track I wanted to take because there were two different stories that I could tell, right? Mm-hmm. I could tell like the early life of a diva to now, or I could tell my journey through in motherhood. Mm-hmm. And we decided to tell the story of my journey through motherhood. Um, and I wrote a few sample chapters and that's what sold the book. Now, the second part of your question is my decision to be so vulnerable. That's right. Um, preface this by saying therapy. Okay. I had worked through a lot. By the time I got my book deal, it was May of 2020. So we were new into the pandemic, Mm -hmm. but I had been in therapy for at least four, three years by this point. And so I had done a lot of healing work, still had a lot to do, but I had done a lot. And I figured if I'm going to tell my story, like I'm going to tell my That's story, right. the good, the bad, the ugly, I'm put myself on blast. Like you can't put others on blast and not put yourself on blast. <laughs> like what's that, what's that line the old folks say? If you point one finger out, you still got three pointing at you. That's like, it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Let, like, how am I going to say my daughter's father did this, 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 and this, but I was also kind of complicit in some of these things, but don't worry about what I did. Worry about what he did. Like, sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 It doesn't work that way. Um, and I also had to really think about just some of the choices that I've made in life that led me to these different situations. Right. Right. And the history behind not only my choices, but choices of the women that came before me, how do they play a role in how I think about the world, how I see myself in the world, how I'm raising my child? Um, the book in and of itself is really a very real, open, raw story of a woman going through motherhood Yeah, in all facets of it the relationship aspects between her and her mother, her and her partner, her and her child, 
her and the medical field. Um, without giving too much away, for your listeners and people watching this, my daughter is disabled. So there's a relationship between myself and the medical field that has to be navigated. And then the history of the medical field as it pertains to disability and how that in, impacts how I'm interacting with them. Mm -hmm. And I decided like, if I'm going to tell my story, I'm going to tell it all. Mm -hmm. Like also because we live in this weird culture where like people think they can always gotcha and I'm not going to get got. <laughs> no, forget that. <laughs> so like, this is it. Like, yeah, I got pregnant within a month and a half of dating my man. Oops. But who hasn't? Like who hasn't done that? <laughs> some, some improper decision-making <laughs> skills are rampant in this world. So like, Judge me if you want to, but also judge yourself. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's an opportunity for people, not just women, people, if you read the book, to not only look at this person who is just living their life open and accountable, but also hopefully invite them to look at themselves. That's right. Um, I think we have a tendency to beat ourselves up for the decisions that we make. Mm -hmm. And it's an opportunity to say, mm, yeah, that wasn't a great decision, but maybe, you know, maybe I'm not so horrible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, you know, I handled this decision this way and I see how I possibly could have handled it differently. Right. And if given the opportunity, I can go and maybe not correct that wrong, but take accountability for how I handled it. That's it. Like, I'm a big person. I'll be like, look, I meant every word I said to you. I meant it. However, perhaps I could have said it a little bit differently. Yeah. I could have been a little bit softer in my approach. So I will apologize for how I approached our situation. Yeah. But trust and believe the sentiment behind what I said is there. Like, I meant what I said. That's right. I just wish I could have said it differently. Yeah. Yes, I love that. I'm 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 from that school as well. Uh, you know, I I meant what I said. Um, that doesn't shift, and I and I I feel that way sometimes about apologies. Like don't don't apologize. You did what you thought you needed to do, or you should have done. Um, so own own that. Uh, make a make a commitment to not doing it again, or to doing it differently, or doing it better. But you know, mm -hmm. I, you don't have to. I don't want to hear you apologize for it. And and you know, a, a message I take from from everything you just said about the book. And the vulnerability is that uh, it's not about, and you tackled this a second ago, but it's not about critiquing yourself on whether what you did was right or, or what you did was wrong. It's about having the the bravery, dare I say, to to put yourself on the couch and say, "Here is, in fact, what I did." And free from free from excuses, free from uh, unjustifiable reasons, free from scapegoats. But here is what happened. And here is what I did. We'll get to the right or wrong later on, but here is what happened, period. And I also think in being vulnerable, and I have said this in other talks that I've given, in being vulnerable, two things happen. You start the process of saving your own life. You really like do. Yeah, yeah. When you are vulnerable, you are giving yourself permission to start the process of saving your own life. Uh but also your vulnerability allows people to see your humanity. Mm -hmm. 
people who may not ever there may be a clan member in kentucky who's like i hate black people and i hate disabled kids and damn it if they keep making babies yeah and someone will tell them about this book and they'll be like damn i've been there yeah i didn't have money for my kid either yeah 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 my my mom dated a lot of dudes who were married too Mm. So you may hate the color of my skin and the fact that my child uses yeah. a wheelchair. You will see yourself in me. Uh, yeah. So it's it's also this desire for people just to see the humanity in each other. I think that's how you start to change the world that you live in, right? When you can yeah. recognize another person's humanity, regardless of how you feel about them, yeah. recognizing their humanity automatically shifts the dynamic. There's no doubt about it. And, and you know, uh, man, uh, you just said something. I lost it. Uh, I run my mouth. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it was it was so profound. I wanted to make sure that what I was going to say did it justice. Uh, I lost it. But you, you. About vulnerability? Uh, likely, uh, likely. Uh, but, the, but the message around vulnerability at the end of the day is, is, is. It's for me really profound, especially when you couple it with this notion of it, it saves your life. I remember what I was going to say. Uh, you started talking about these these comparisons between maybe essentially differing points of view and, and, and ideologies. And I was sharing this the other day with somebody. Or I was just, you know, repeating it because it wasn't my, my narrative to tell. But, you know, I remember when Obama was on the campaign trail, he would talk about how, you know, there were plenty of, you know, older white dudes who was not a fan of him for some of the various reasons you said. Maybe some of it was racially motivated. Uh, maybe a lot of it was the fear of having a black dude in, in office. Uh, what does that mean for a breakaway from the norm? Uh, mm-hmm. And then some of it was just ideological differences on the grounds of being Democratic and, and Republican. Mm-hmm. But he said, but back then, at least, this is kind of pre-cancel culture. Back then, he was able to get into the door and have a conversation because although they disagreed politically and ideologically, <clears throat> Excuse me. They they understood these white dudes understood what it meant to be a father who loves the kids, right? You know, to be a, a devoted husband, to be right. somebody who is trying to achieve their dreams, or has, even though it might be a different way, has a desire <clears throat> to make the country better. Right? And and, right. and the vulnerability to be able to say, "I'm looking at you," and coming up, I've seen somebody who's been an enemy to me for whatever reason, and maybe I still believe that, but. Allowing me to be vulnerable allows us to see some more similarities and differences. Right. And to celebrate those differences. Exactly. Um, I'm going to say this and you can strike it from the record if you need to. I am not an all lives matter person. But at the end of the day, we do all have commonalities. Sure. Of course. That there's a common thread that runs through all of us in one way or another there's no doubt so, there's no doubt so yeah. well and 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 the only way i would strike that is if you wanted me to but the to, to to if i can couple that a little bit what i would say is I, the notion of all lives matter is finds itself as problematic in terms of its timing so to 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 back to push back on black lives matter with all lives matter makes it a problem that the, and that's that's the context that I mean it in. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That that's that's where it's a problem. But all lives all lives mattering 
in general. Obviously. It's not an issue, right? Right. No, 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 no. For those who are listening, like, wait, what did she say? Of course, boo, your life matters. Obviously. I would never say your life does not matter. In the context of Black Lives Matter, this is where I stand. That's right. Yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And, you know, and at the end of the day, uh, behaviors are learned. And my research is in behavior and design. And we know this to be true. Social behaviors. I'm not talking about blinking and swallowing and breathing, right? I'm talking (laughs) about social and organizational behavior. These are learned things. Isms are learned. Racism, sexism. And so if you hate me because of the color of my skin, that happened over time. Right. And and so they're, they're, in other words, remove those behaviors or change those behaviors, then we can actually come to a similarity. That's just what it means to be human. Right, exactly. It's I love that you said that you're very much into behavior. If I hadn't uh, gone into social work, I would have gone into psychology and studied behavior. I'm such a fan of Abraham Maslow, like behavior yeah, yeah, yeah. to the tenth. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it, it certainly it certainly shifts the way you think about things. Uh, mm-hmm. All right, so you 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 had a beautiful segue into where I was going next, which is um, your your daughter and your children's book. So I, I want to let you take the lead. Um, do you want to start with uh, the full Nelson or uh, meet Clara Blue, Clara Bell Blue, and whichever uh, one makes more sense let's to the transition? The full Nelson. Let's start with the okay, full let's. Nelson. All right, so uh, Emmy award-winning documentary, right? The full <laughs> Nelson. So make that very clear one more time for the people in the back. The Emmy award-winning documentary. Oh, here we go. If people who are watching, Adiba is showing us the award. Beautiful. Look at that <laughs> thing there. It is somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I see it. I see it. Uh, The full Nelson. Talk to us about the documentary. You already shared with us how it came to be. Sort of, we can't we can't publish your book, but you should, or or you should write a memoir, which then later turns into, I believe, the full Nelson. Is that what you said? No. So the full. Tell us about the full Nelson. I'm going to step back. (laughs) Okay, go for it. So I do some work with our local public media here, and they had me shoot a couple of commercials. And they were conceptualizing this new show um, that they wanted me to be a part of. It was like a three minute talk back on a certain subject. And they came to the house and we shot the commercial and then we shot the three minute talk back. And they took it back to the office, start editing it. And as they were doing it, they realized, you know, we actually want to talk to her some more. We think she has a really amazing story we want to do a documentary. And so they called me and they're like, hey, you know, we're not going to use that footage. I was like, okay, that's that's fine. Um, they said, but would you be open to us doing a documentary? And I was like, excuse me? Oh, hey, where did it come from? <laughs> what? You want to do me? Why? Like, what are you talking about? And they explained that they really wanted to tell the story of myself and my daughter and just how we move through this world. And at the time I was also uh, a burlesque performer. Yeah. And the dichotomy of like mom raising a child with a disability but also she takes her clothes off (laughs) like like, and she writes children's books none of this work like none of this goes together sure remember that sesame street song three of these things are doing yeah yeah yeah. i was the thing that was not the same (laughs) not the same right right yeah um and i was like all right cool you're like yeah we'll do it we'll do it and um so they followed me for about two weeks um 
coming over at like five in the morning because I would get up at 4.30 to start working before the rest of the house got up until my daughter got up um, because that's just how my day was structured. Mm -hmm. And so they would come at like five in the morning to see my morning process and then getting my daughter ready and they'd come to school with us and therapy and I had some speaking engagements that came to those. They came to a burlesque show and recorded that. Mm -hmm. And um, then they put it all together in this gorgeous documentary they came to the hair shop with me y'all I let them see me get a weave which you know is like that's that's private <laughs> yeah man yeah man I gave away all the secrets <laughs> um but yeah like I let them see me tenderheaded and patting the weave and just let me breathe through this real tight little edge right here yeah listen man uh-huh I don't miss that uh my my, my head is as I've toughened up but early whoo it's it's a time like yeah. I have cried I have cried of course um, I get it and it was also just like this is my life this is what my life looks like as a black Latin mom raising a child with a disability I was married at the time but my ex-husband did not want to be a part of it which was eh, whatever mm -hmm. that's fine um, but that's what my life looked like and people just got a sneak peek into what I do and why I do it, which is my daughter. You know, at the end of the day, my daughter is always my why. She's behind every decision that I make because I understand that I'm not going to be here forever. And so I feel it's my responsibility as her mother to make sure that not only is she financially set up when I'm gone, because that's important, obviously, especially, especially for someone with a disability. I, my one thing I do not want to do is leave her in the care of the state should something happen mm. to me. It's just not an option. It's not an option. So she's behind every financial decision I make, which admittedly, I have not always made the best financial decisions. Sure. Um, But she's also behind just every like moral, ethical, professional decision that I make. Um, because in addition to making sure that like she's financially set up, I also need to make sure that this world and the community that we live in is set up to hold her when I'm not mm -hmm. here, right? Um, that they understand who she is and how she is and love her just as much as I do. I mean, obviously you can't because I'm her mom, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> But like care for her, care for her well-being. That's my responsibility to make sure that the community that she lives in is shored up and has the resources and the, the resources essentially mm -hmm. to make sure that her life does not change when I'm gone. Yeah. It should yeah. only get better. That's right. Um, and part of doing that was also in writing the children's book. This is the second part of your question. Mm -hmm. um, when she was two, I couldn't find any children's books where there were little black girls with disabilities represented. Yeah, no, I wouldn't imagine you would. There were zero, <laughs> yeah. not a single one. Um, they wanted me, I went to Barnes and Nobles and they showed me a, a little critter's book. And I was like, that's cool. But like my kid's not a critter. Not so a critter, right. I'm not going to work. And we know um, that there's more representation of animals than than black folks in always, yeah. always, always, and that's a whole nother. We could that's do a whole, whole different discussion, mm. <laughs> which we talked about with with Rebecca Ballinger on, on this season. Anyway, moving forward, I'm gonna have to check that one out. <laughs> um, but 
I couldn't find any books and I got irritated. And so I went home and I rode my children's book, Meet Clarabelle Blue, which shameless plug I happen to have right here. It is. Can we see the back? Um, and so I went home and I rage wrote it. And my cousin's like, and it was initially just to be for my own kid. Mm -hmm. I wanted her to have something that she could see herself in because the way kids' minds work, if they see themselves out in the world, they know they exist. It's like when a kid sees himself in the mirror for the first time. Oh my God, I'm here. It's yeah. me. It's the same thing when they see themselves in a book. Oh my God, that kid looks like me. I'm here. It validates them. If you don't ever see yourself in the world around you, it starts to, what worth do I have? Am I yeah. here? Do people see me? Am I important? I needed her to know that as a young Black Afro-Latin child with a disability, yes, you are here. Yes, you are worthy. Yes, you are important. You are loved. You have value. I needed her to know all of those things from minute one. Yes. And I could pour them into her with my mouth all day, but at the end of the day, kids are watching TV. They're reading books. They're looking at magazines. They're playing video games. They're watching movies. I needed her to see herself. That's right. That's right. So it was initially just for her. And my cousin was like, look, if you think that your kid is the only one that's not seeing themselves, you're mistaken. Other mm -hmm. kids in this world don't see themselves. You need to publish this. That's right. And I was like, oh, that's a really good point. So I tried to go through publishers. They didn't want it. They told me it was too niche that the world was not ready. What and then year was this? Huh? What year was this, Adiba? Uh, this was 2011. Uh, okay. So in 2011, apparently the world was still not ready to accept right. little brown children with disabilities. Right. And me and my smart mouth was like, well, we're here now. I don't got time to wait. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I know, right? Uh-huh. We don't have time to wait for the world to be ready. We are here right now. And so I learned how to self-publish and I self-published the children's book. Um, and this little book that little, like nobody wanted it. Twice now, nobody wanted it. <laughs> Has gone on to sell, God, I think now over seven thousand copies. That's great. And I'm, I'm about to go into my fourth printing, fourth or fifth printing of this book. Nice. Now, yeah. uh, uh, publishers still haven't picked it up, or is it, or is the fourth printing with publisher? Okay. No, it's still me. Still me out here checking these books. I don't understand, man. Well, and it's, it's telling. A lot of it is. It's because it's self-published. Once something is self-published, a lot of publishers just don't want to go down that road. I have yeah. other books coming out publishers that are children's books, but this one, they ain't taking it. You know, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was self-published. Uh, the Martian was self-published. Well, you know, those are all white folks. Sorry, folks. Exactly. That's, that's, that's what I say. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. You know, forget I the self-publishing notion. I'm gonna call a spade a spade. I may not ever get a book deal again. I'm not putting that in the universe, God. Like, no, like, you will. Give me all you the will. deals. I'm just saying that there might be a little bit of bias there. No, there, there for sure is. And I'll tell you this much: if folks weren't ready to, to, if, if folks thought there wasn't space for that conversation in 2011, they need to know that there's space for it in 2023. I mean, this is what we talk about. The fact of the matter is this racism is embedded in all of these different fields. And I know that there are, and there are black publishers out there and uh, who, if, if 
if it hasn't if, if these folks haven't been been in this position for to, to find success for the black people then they themselves would have to or need to know that they need to make space for for aspiring black authors to to find success i mean if one of the best pieces of advice i've ever gotten in life that had to do with hiring but it's so relevant in this conversation is uh, sometimes uh, to bring the diversity you have to be the diversity Oof. and the the message behind that of course uh, along with saying like um you know you may have to, to 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 eat a couple take a few on the chin get back up yeah. because you're the only one there you may have to do that so you can bring the adibas in uh, and and you know the the stephanies and so on and so forth but yeah. the the other message there is that um, if you are not there, then who is going to be able to best speak to the voices that that you can relate to or identify okay. with? So, also black true. publishers. I have do want to say, um, Deneen Milner Books is doing a fantastic job of bringing more black voices into the children's book landscape. Um, she's one of my favorite authors. She is a friend. She now has um, an imprint with. Um, believe it's Simon and Schuster nice. and she has this new book coming out under her imprint called you so black and I cannot wait to get this book it is nice gorgeous. and all of her books that she puts out on her imprint are books that are written and illustrated by black people I love it I love it but more publishing houses need to do this Yes. They need to yes. Really their money where their mouth is. You say you want diversity. You say you want to put out diverse books. Put the people in place that can bring you that. That's it. That's ex that's exactly it. I I self published a children's book a couple of years back as well uh, called uh, uh, My Family the Superheroes, and it was oh. before Sladen came up, but it was in anticipation of Sladen. And I don't push it as off as much as I as I should, but uh, it was really about a little boy I, I loved I, it just came to me one day it's about a little boy obviously he was supposed to be my son it doesn't look anything like him now that we know have sleep here <laughs> but I, I, I shot in the duck but it's about a little boy who sees his family doing ordinary things but thinks that they have superpowers like he sees he falls and scratches his leg and you know his mom puts a band-aid on him and all of a sudden he thinks his mom has like healing power or he sees oh, his mom put, take a piece of bread and some butter and put it together put in the toast to come out with toast and he's like whoa like how did this how did this happen <laughs> you know he's he he sees his sister changing to go out so she goes from one outfit to another and he's a she's a shapeshifter in his eyes and <laughs> stuff like that you know it was uh it was really cool i actually really really like it it was one of my favorite works i ever did but i don't i don't push it as much as i should maybe i should get back after you that. should I absolutely <laughs> <In> representation <laughs> you should absolutely push that it was a it was a cool adventure uh which and this kind of takes me to uh, another question. I just have a couple more for you, Adiva. Sure. Um, uh, so I didn't know you were a, a, a children's author, and so I, I respect that. I love it. Again, like I said, I dabbled as well, and the fact that yours has made so much noise is is a beautiful sign, at least to me, that that uh, that validates that the need is out there for it. Um, how has, and your daughter's name is Emery. It is. Okay. How how has disability advocacy changed for you since before having Emory to since having Emory? Were you a disability advocate? Um, or was it one of those things that, like for a lot of us, um, you don't know until you know, it kind of shifts. So right. How does that change for you? 
So I would not go as far as to title myself a disability advocate before Emory was born. Okay. I will say I always would advocate for fair treatment of people in general. Of course. And I would not tolerate unfair treatment or ableism before I knew what that there was a word called ableism. Right. Sure. Um around disability. Yeah. And the reason for that was because my mom when I was a kid was a special education teacher. Mm-hmm. And I would often go into her classroom to help out with her students. So disability was never something that was foreign to me or scary to me it wasn't some to use a word that kids would use it wasn't weird to me yeah um it was just these are students they're on the third floor I'm on the second floor my mom is their teacher I'm gonna go help like that that was it it wasn't anything different um and then I had a cousin who when he was a baby um had a bad reaction to some uh vaccines and he stopped breathing and then ended up with cerebral palsy and seizures and I just he was my little squishy like I just loved him and so and I was always helping out at like special olympics and then when I was in college I worked a summer at a camp for kids with disabilities and so it was just never something that was outside the norm for you it was right it wasn't outside the norm but I wouldn't I wouldn't have titled myself an advocate it was just like these things ain't happening on my watch type of situation sure. becoming a mother to a child with a disability is that times 1000 sure that's right yeah it's that times 1000 because not only is it not happening on my watch I will find a way to make you pay for it if it does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the commitment's different, yeah. It's a totally different ball game. But at the same time, I'm not just advocating for her. I'm advocating for, like, so when she was a toddler, I wasn't just advocating for toddlers with disabilities because toddlers with disabilities become teenagers with disabilities. That's right, yeah. And then become yeah. adults with the disabilities. And God willing, my child is going to go through all of these stages. That's so right. I will forever advocate for the disabled community as a whole and that will advocate for them to always be seen and spoken to and treated as whole human beings because they are and I think in our society we have a tendency to see disability and automatically intrinsically think less than that's right um less uh economically advantaged less socially advantaged um uh less intelligent uh less everything less sexual less attractive right and right that right could right. not be farther from the truth that's right they that's right. people within the disabled communities are literally just like us because you know what at any given point in time any one of us can become disabled mm-hmm. and if we live long enough we will actually in some way shape or form have a disability sure so we're all in this right um, now I will absolutely say I'm a, disa- a disability advocate or a, um, a disabled rights advocate because I will be damned if while I am on this earth, I am not doing as much as I possibly can for the people who have come before my daughter so that when my daughter gets to where they are, 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's already set up. That's right. That's it's right. already set up. That's right. I'm trying to get meetings here in Tucson with the city at the uh, Planning Streets Committee because for some reason, yes. Tucson is ridiculously sidewalk averse. And um, <laughs> yes. we have people in motorized wheelchairs and scooters who are riding their vehicles, their vehicles for mobility in a bike lane. Yeah, which isn't we wide all, enough for them. We already know that people don't pay attention when they're driving down the road. Yeah. yeah. People on bikes get killed all the time. I don't want my child when she's old enough to be out there on her own, which I can't say that I will actually let that happen because I'm a helicopter. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, but I hope that I have enough like guts for myself to just kind of like, let her go and explore the city on her own. I want her to do that. I want sure. myself to let her do that. Sure. But if she's going to be riding in a bike lane, absolutely not. Hell no, because unless somebody hit my child, they're getting sued and the city's getting sued and the state's getting sued. I will take it as high as it needs to go. You got so, two cases. You got criminal and civil. Hello. Like, <laughs> I, I will not stop. And so I'm trying to do that work now so that I don't have to do that. I don't want to be. That's right. Yeah. Work. I'm trying to do y'all a favor. Right? Just, so just listen. Right. Hear me out. <laughs> but like also helping people understand that like the laws that we're passing now greatly affect the disabled community, but no one thinks about that. No. No. Um, no. I did a whole article on how Roe v. Wade affects disabled women or disabled people who identify as women mm. or who don't identify as women, but still have women parts. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Um, there is a, like it greatly affects the disabled community, but no one thinks about that. No one thinks about the entire trickle-down effect when they're passing policies and laws. Just like they don't think about how it affects the disabled community, they don't think about how it affects minority communities, they don't think about how it affects the economically disadvantaged communities. They just make these arbitrary laws and policies and think everyone's gonna be okay. Mm. But everyone is not okay. Adiba, what was one of those findings you came across in the article you wrote? It doesn't have to be everything, but of, of Roe v. Wade and dis- disabled. Uh, okay. So one of the findings is that um, I think it's something like 74% of sexual assault cases and rape cases happen to women that are disabled, but they're not reported um, because law enforcement oftentimes does not uh, believe the disabled person or a prosecutor feels that they will have a hard time convincing a jury that this disabled person was assaulted because sometimes they can't speak or um, uh, they have wow. difficulty communicating. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And yeah. it's wild that we're talking about this because just before we got on this uh, call, I was watching Law & Order because I love it. Who doesn't? Bomb <laughs> uh, bomb for life. <laughs> the case that they were talking about was about a disabled Black woman who was raped. Um, and the prosecutor said, no one's going to believe her. She can't even talk. And the, wow. the Benson, Olivia Benson said, but she can communicate. She can blink. She blinked. Like that's how she communicates. Yeah. And he said, a jury's not going to buy a blank. And that was law and order from like early 2000s. And in 2023, that's still the case. Yeah. 
Yeah. But if these women are being assaulted and they get pregnant and they can't have an abortion, then they're forced to have these children that their body may not even be able to withstand. Yeah. Like there's just this whole trickle down that no one thinks about. No one thinks about. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I as well, well, I'm a, <clears throat> a lot of folks don't know this, but it's, it's, it's more recent than some other things, but I'm also a constitutional scholar. And what I try to also bring to light similarly as, as, you, as you're naming is that, you know, some of these Supreme Court cases and statutes and bills and laws, as you just beautifully named, right? They have they have overarching impacts on on uh, on identities beyond what's just right on the table. For example, right. we have the affirmative action case coming up, uh, which has been argued three times already, minimally, twice in, in Texas, University of Texas, once in Michigan, mm-hmm. and it's, the Supreme Court has upheld every time that affirmative action is as not unconstitutional. And Mm -hmm. so here's the thing. My point with this is if for whatever reason, the Supreme court as conservative as it is, decides to say that, that race is counting race uh, for purposes of admission in colleges or university is in fact unconstitutional. Then what they are also saying is that counting, considering gender is also unconstitutional considering uh, age, considering ability and whether that's true or untrue, the people who identify with those communities who are in support of the notion that race-based admissions is unconstitutional are not seeing that they're also going to open the door for their identities to be uh, taken off the, the consideration as well. And this is because right, the ruling is that race by itself is unconstitutional, but race as a mitigating factor among many is mm-hmm. constitutional, right? Because now you, if you're going to open the door for race, you have to open the door for the others is what the conversation right. really is. But if you take race away, you're also saying we have to take away the others. And people just don't see it to your point uh, when they make the laws. And right. stuff. In home cases, it's, yeah. it's a self-serving situation. It's always going to be self-serving. Um, but if I might do a small plug, I really do want people to understand how Roe v. Wade affects the disabled community. Yes. So small plug, folks, if you're listening or if you're watching, if you can just Google Adiba Nelson Parents Magazine Roe v. Wade, um, the article will come up and it's it's so important that people understand um, how critical this issue actually is. Yes, thank you for that, and I'll link. I'll link to it as we, uh, 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 as as so the audience can can see it. Those who are watching, um, man, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna ask maybe two more questions. I don't want to hold you, Adib, but I appreciate you. I came ready <laughs> to go, and I wanted to have a lot more of a free flowing feel, which I hope I hope we're what we're feeling here. Um, good. <laughs> Uh, so let's see where do I want to go with my next question? Dun, dun, dun. So here's what I want. Here's what I want to ask you. Uh, this, 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 so there's a quote I got from you that says the beauty uh-huh. of adult rebellion, right? Uh-huh. And what you shared here is that you believe in women's rebellion as an act of self-love and power. Mm-hmm. Break that down for us a little bit. From the dawn of time, women have been told what they can and cannot do, right? If you believe in the story of creationism, Eve was told, don't eat the apple. Mm-hmm. Oh, you hungry? Eat the apple. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was so wrong. <laughs> but my point is that like, 
there's always been this rule book made by men of what is appropriate and not appropriate for women what we can and cannot do what we can and cannot wear what we can and cannot say especially in public um how we should and should not raise our children um what we should and should not watch like everything every aspect of our lives has been put into some arbitrary rule book and deemed appropriate versus inappropriate and i yeah. just said f it like that's can i curse can i curse go for it go for that's it bullshit <laughs> <laughs> it is i just i gotta call it, that is some bullshit like no 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 i'm not ascribing to it and so i feel like as women and no offense to men, like men can rebel too because there's all these rules around what is manhood and what is masculinity. Like F that noise. You are who you are and how you are in this world and that is okay. Yes. It's enough. Yeah. Um, it's enough just to get out of bed and take a breath. Like <laughs> all this other BS about how you're supposed to be. That's right. Um, <laughs> so for me, yes, the beauty of adult rebellion, especially for women, is that it is freeing. Yeah. You free yourself from the noise of who and what society tells you you should or should not be. That's it. And you define it for yourself. Specific and also like really like for black women, especially. No doubt. Yeah. There's all these rules. Um and they're based in not only patriarchy, but they're based in racism. Mm. And for so long, we've ascribed to them. And I'm just like at this point where I'm just like, meh, I'm gonna do me. Like, that's it. And I understand that for some women, there are various factors that may not allow you to be as free as you might wanna be. Sure. Yes, there's always nuances. Um, whether it's economics or, your own feelings about yourself, um, religion, all of it. When it comes to religion, I always tell people, examine what you know versus what you were taught. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And let your belief system be based on that. Um, but find a way to just be your most authentic self, regardless of the outside noise. Yeah. I do have a very, I have a rule that I go by. It's the three F's. Um, I will uh, find a way to eloquently discuss <laughs> them. But it's the three F's. It's financing, feeding, and fornicating. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I was like, I never used that word. <laughs> 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 yes if you are not doing either of those things in my life it don't matter <laughs> your opinion any of that it doesn't matter if you're <laughs> if you are contributing in my life in any of those three ways then we can have a conversation and i'm gonna like yeah. release it into account and take it to heart yeah but yeah. otherwise like it's just noise <laughs> fair enough i have and to be I myself at the end of the day and, and, you know, you talked about earlier how in 2011, things were one way. Today, it's another. How early episode of Law and Order in 2000, one way. Today, it's the same. Um, I should say 2011, one way. Today's the same. Um, but that, that position you just took, 
since the dawn of time is a very radical position. And some might argue even today, it's still just as, if not just as, still as radical of a notion to be a woman, a black woman at that, to come out and say, here are the three Fs, um, you know, let's talk about it. And to not have men, for sure, uh, and conservative women be like, and maybe even some liberal women to be like, whoa, hey, you know, Adiba, let me call you in for a second and talk about how you might want to rethink this. And I'm sure, I am sure that's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it's give it time, right? Give it time. Yeah. Sure. Um, but I, here's where I have to say to that, keeping in mind that every decision I make is with my why in the back of my mind, my daughter. Yeah. Those three Fs still fall into that. Of course. Yeah, as they should. Fall into that. So at the end of the day, like you might want to call me in and be like, do you really want to like talk about like if someone's not feeding you, fornicating or financing your life that their opinion doesn't matter? We can talk about it, but financing looks a whole lot of different ways. I'm not looking for a sugar daddy. I don't need a sugar daddy. <laughs> no. But financing means you're buying my book, right? Yes. So my yeah, responsibility right. to yes. you as being a person who is financing my life is to be my authentic self with you. That's right. That's right. That's right. So yep. I like that. You're buying my book. You're also feeding me and my child. So it's my responsibility to you to be my authentic self. Yes. And that's also that. my responsibility to my child to be my authentic self because it gives her permission to be her authentic self. That's right. Yeah. Fornicating. Well, that's just between me and mine. So. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Uh, Adiba, one last question for you uh, before I give you just a closing question. Sure. Um, skating downhill, right? the yeah. art of claiming your life. Uh, that was your Today's TEDx. the anniversary of that. Today is? The six-year anniversary oh. of TEDx. Wow. Well, how apropos. Um, and I, <laughs> you know, the, the uh, I have to imagine that your position on about the beauty of adult rebellion and the TEDx you gave kind of gave birth to uh, the, the Big Bang McGillicuddy. And so... Yeah. <laughs> so Bang is an amalgamation of all of it. So, so, so feel free to wrap that in if you want, but uh, take us home by just talking a little bit about... I did, a, I did a TEDx talk a couple years back. It wasn't stressful, but it was like, I want to make sure I get this right. And, you know, the story, the message, if not a story, is one I really want people to grapple with and hold on to. And it felt very much like it did when... Like I was writing my own books and, you know, uh, that vulnerability you talked about. So talk about the TEDx. Talk about sort of um, the message you wanted to get out um, and then sort of sort of uh, what it did for you in terms of practicing what you preach, this idea of reclaiming or claiming you know, the life in your life. So the message that I really wanted people to walk away with with my TED Talk, um, Skating Downhill, The Art of Claiming Your Life, is that where you are is not necessarily where you'll end up. Um, just because you find yourself on hard times does not mean that's where your story has to end. It doesn't, like you get to claim your life. Um, and sometimes it looks like skating downhill face first into like everything that's scary. Yeah. Yes. Um, because when you decide to claim your life, um, there's a lot of new things that you have to adjust to and experience and learn. And it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's so worth it. It's yes. so yeah. worth it. 
And also to understand that there are always going to be things and people that try to get in the way of you claiming your life, but you don't have to pause at those things. Um, I give an analogy at the end of the TED talk of um, people are like trees. Um, Sometimes they will fall in your path. But if a tree, and the, that's their way of like trying to like divert your attention, stop you from going forward, tell you you're not going to make it, you're not good enough. Our own voices in our heads, right? Society, family, church, all the things that will try to stop you sometimes from reaching your goal. Mm-hmm. Sometimes friends, right? Um, but if you have decided that you are claiming your life, if a tree falls down, on any path that you're walking, the tree has fallen because it's dead. Mm-hmm. You can't bring it back to life. It's a dead tree. So, yeah. so you have a choice, right? There's now this tree in your path. What you want is on the other side of this tree. What you know is behind you. Mm-hmm. You can turn around and go back to what you know because the tree fell and you can't get any further in your head. So, okay. Or you can go around the tree. You can step over the tree. Sometimes you may need to cut through the tree. Go through it, yeah. I'm not saying kill people. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) You might need to cut some folks off and just make a path for yourself. Yes. But the point is, once you decided to claim your life, you just keep going. That's right. You have no idea what the rest of this path looks like, but you know that you were supposed to get to that other side. Yes. And so you just keep going. And as long as what I like to call alligators, as long as you can know in your gut that there are no alligators at the end of that path, and the alligators at the end of the path are the things that you know you have no business doing, but they're going to be popping out. Hey, come over here. (laughs) You can see the alligator be like, nah, that's not the right way. And keep going on the way you're supposed to go. You will get there. Yeah. You will get there. I like that. Um, And so that... That was what pe- I wanted people to take away from my TED Talk was yeah. is not like this is not where your story ends. My story could have ended with 38 cents in my bank account and putting my child in foster care because I couldn't take care of her. But I refuse to believe like I always say like God, like the big homie up there, like he's not a punk and he's <laughs> not trying to go out looking like a fool. So like if my story had ended there, he'd look crazy. Uh, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> you know, crazy. Like, you gave this girl this beautiful child. You can let her like fail out like that. Right, 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 right. That's not going out like that. So it's kind of like we have this agreement. Like, you do what you gotta do. I'm gonna do what I gotta do, and we just gonna go down the road. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and that your decision with that tree as you move forward, whichever route you take now becomes a part of what you know, you know behind you. So when that next tree pops up, you, you yep. have an idea of how to engage it. I like that. Exactly. Exactly. Adib, that was beautiful. Thank you for spending some time with me and with the listeners today. Before I let you go, um, I always like to give my my guests an opportunity <laughs> an opportunity to uh to tell us where we can find you. Um uh, publications, websites, hashtags, handles, anything like that. Uh, how can people get in touch with you if they wanted to? Okay, uh, so on LinkedIn, I think I'm just Adiba Nelson. On Instagram, I'm Adiba Nelson and also Adiba Writes. 
um, on Twitter, I'm Adiba Nelson. On Facebook, okay. Adiba Nelson writer. <laughs> okay. Um, my website is thefullnelson.net. Um, you can buy the book "Ain't That a Mother" on Amazon. You can buy it at Barnes and Noble. I think anywhere like books are sold. If they nice. don't have it, they can order it for you. Uh, the children's book I literally just sold out. Uh, I have more English copies, but I have one, two, three, four, about six hundred Spanish copies. So if people oh. need it in Spanish, I do have that. Um, I can search my name with bylines with Washington Post, Huffington Post, Parents Magazine, Madame Noir. Um, YouTube. I did a talk at the Smithsonian. Um, nice. May and that's up on YouTube. My TED Talks on YouTube. Um, I'm not gonna tell y'all where you can find my burlesque stuff because I've retired. <laughs> okay. And you gotta pay me for a show these days. <laughs> that's it. I respect it. That's right. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then um, email is just adiba at thefullnelson.net or adiba at clarabellblue.com. Um, I do speak around the country, excuse me, speaking around the country on <clears throat> inclusion, accessibility, and diversity as it pertains to the disabled community, um, specifically parents learning how to advocate for their kiddos um, and teaching uh, educators what inclusion actually is versus what it is not. Huge, Adiva. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the wonderful work you do. And for keeping a shining light on the causes that really matter, especially those that are not a part of the day-to-day -day discussions often. In, in oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I definitely appreciate this. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, those listening, Dr. Sherrod Robbins, Adiba Nelson, and you are on the chopping block at visceralchange.org.